teenagers from the church mowing the lawn. And it just went on like that, on and on and on. I don't know how anybody functions without a church family. And uh, as I've said the previous two nights, if you're here tonight, you don't have a church family, let me recommend this one here. As you can plainly see, great things are happening here. So come on back when I'm not here. You have church every week, right? See, every week they have church here. That's a joke. They have week every church. Churches have church every week, right? So come back uh, and and enjoy yourself. Uh, Become a part of the family. You know, there's the family of God, which binds us all together, regardless of background or denomination. But there's also this church family that meets in this place. And so I encourage you to become a part of that. And you'll be glad you did, I promise you. It's been great to be here and be a part of the family myself. And I just just uh, had such a wonderful time. Thank you for letting me come. And I've met so many wonderful fe- people here from really around the country who have been around the world. And we've talked, uh, well, I guess we talked shop um, when we had chances to be together in fellowship. Um, if you're not in full-time ministry, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. Sometimes we stage things like this just so we can get together. That's right. Yeah, because <laughs> we, we don't get to see each other very much because of what we do. Hardly ever on weekends would you ever see them because we're working on the weekends. And so uh, it's, it makes it very difficult sometimes. Some of my best friends in the world I don't get to see, but maybe once a year or maybe every couple of years or so. So it's always great to get together in fellowship with folks that, that do ministry or called into ministry full-time. Um, we're all called into ministry full-time, but folks who do this vocationally, right. it's just great to be with all of you, and I've been honored to do that. So thank you very much for letting me come to the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles. And i got to tell you, it has been a feast. Um, uh, boy, people in Vermont really know how to cook. It's just unbelievable. And cook and cook and cook. And um, we ate a lot of it. It was really good. And then today, of course, we've, had, uh, we've discovered that here in Vermont, something falls from the sky besides leaves, uh, rain, past couple of days, and I looked at the forecast, so we got some more tomorrow, and uh, you know, we got to have some. That's right. Yeah, we can't, it's not all sunshine. And we're going to kind of talk about that from a, from a theological, from a personal standpoint tonight. Um, and I want to review a little bit for folks that weren't able to be with us the first couple of nights, uh, just so you'll get a kind of a, the, the big picture of what happened, because this story is more than just a story about somebody who died and went to heaven and came back. It's a story about miracles. It is a story about answered prayer. It is a story about beginning again, because if you live long enough, you're going to have to. Uh, You will have something that just stops you in your track. Maybe several things. And so um, we've had to talk about that because it's crucial. It's important because some people really needed to get off of that dime. Some people needed to really turn the page of their lives and move on. And let God use those circumstances to bless other people. And so that's kind of where we've been. Uh, Monday night, or Monday night, Wednesday night, we talked about answered prayer, and we talked about miracles. Um, I was in a horrible car crash on the way to church. And uh, the only reason I mentioned that is because you need to know that you have to be ready to go to heaven at any moment. If you can die on the way to church, you better be ready all the time. 
So I was at a conference in East Texas, and I was headed to my church uh, south of Houston, 130 miles away, on an old bridge in the middle of nowhere. An 18-wheeler crossed the center stripe and hit my car head on and killed me instantly. One of the first questions I asked on Wednesday is this. If I was killed in the car crash, what am I doing in Vermont? But then I asked the same question of you. What are you doing here? Or New Hampshire, or New York, or Connecticut, or Canada, or wherever you happen to be from. What do you have to show for your life up to this point in time? I'll, I'll deal with that subject a little bit more as we finish. Promise you, I'll come back to that. When I was killed in the car crash, I was, uh, the body was lying there on the bridge, and a pastor who had been at the same conference walked up onto the bridge. He saw the, uh, the, the horrible uh, crash of, uh, of a truck and three cars. Uh, miraculously, nobody else was hurt, and that is a miracle, because if you'd just seen the vehicles, you would have known that. They were all spared. They were treated and released. Uh, they worked on me to try to revive me, resuscitate me. They were unsuccessful. I was pronounced dead on the scene by four paramedics. And the body was covered up so nobody would have to see it. It was gruesome. I had a prayer breakfast back in November of last year. A large group of folks in a town north of Houston, actually close to where this accident occurred. So it was a large group full of people who were having a breakfast. I remember it so vividly because it was the day my father-in-law died. I got the call that morning at 5 a.m. as I was getting dressed to go to the prayer breakfast. And I had to decide whether I was going to go to that breakfast or not. My father-in-law was one of the finest humans I've ever known in my life. Would have looked straight in the eye at me and said, Son, you told him you were coming. You've got to go. And so I did before I went to where he was. At that breakfast, I spoke like I've been speaking these three days. When I got through speaking, I was about to leave the platform and they stopped me. Uh, I assume maybe they were going to make a presentation or something. No, they brought somebody up to the stage. It was the state policeman who was in charge of the accident on the bridge that day. Wow. And uh, they asked him to speak. He could not speak. I think he planned to speak. In fact, I know that he did. But he couldn't speak. He just cried. I went back down to sit with him, and he finally he leaned over and he said, all, the, all he could say was this, there were pieces of you on that bridge, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. All the things he must have seen in his career as a state policeman, uh, the homes that he'd been in where maybe somebody had committed murder, the, uh, uh, the automobile accidents, the, the uh, crimes he investigated, and, uh, and all he could say to me is, I remember pieces of you lying on the bridge. So it was a horrific accident. I was killed instantly. Uh, the pastor crawls in the car, prays over my dead body. People are praying all over the world by this time because they've heard I've been in an accident, but not that I'm dead. And they're all praying. They're all talking to God. And he's listening, just like that preacher was listening on the bridge when God said, pray for the man in the red car. Yes. I, I, I believe God's doing a lot more speaking than we are listening. He was speaking, and this guy was listening, so he crawls in the car, he's obedient, prays over my dead body for an hour and a half. At the conclusion of an hour and a half, 90 minutes, he's singing the, uh, the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, under the tarp in the dark, and I start singing it with him. 
He exited the car briskly <laughs> and said to the policeman, the dead man is singing. The policeman he said that to is the one that I met at the breakfast. The dead man is singing. So uh, they had to get me out of that car. They did. Uh, with a great deal of difficulty, they took me to a hospital eventually, uh, uh, like a, a hundred miles away in Houston, a great medical center there, and uh, I, I was, uh, was admitted to a hospital, uh, and I would be in a hospital bed for 13 months after that, and have 34 major surgeries to reassemble me from head to toe. So what we talked about on Wednesday night are these two things. Answered prayer, I believe God answers prayer. We reference John chapter 14 because it's so rich in this story. Not only is Jesus telling them, telling them about heaven and how to get there, but he's also telling them about prayer because they're going to need this after he leaves. He said, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Well, certainly the people who are praying for me were asking for the impossible. Uh, the man in the car certainly was because he knew I was dead. He, he examined me and saw parts of me all over that car. So he was praying against my physical condition, but because God told him to. He was obedient. So his prayer was answered, as were the prayers of all the people. So I believe in prayer. I think prayer moves the hand of God. And I believe he wants to hear from his children. And whether we acknowledge it or not, we are children of God. And as a parent, you would want to hear from your kids. As a grandparent, you will want to hear from your grandchildren. God the Father wants to hear from his children. And that's what prayer is all about. People prayed for me, and I lived. I had nothing to do with my survival. Had I had a choice, I would not have come back here. I would have stayed there. But the prayers were answered by the people. I believe in prayer. Hey, what, what do you think would happen around here if you decided to pray for people who are not ready to go to heaven? What kind of passion that preacher did over my dead body in the car? I think that's a prescription for revival. Yeah. And I think this would be a great place for one to start right here in this area of the country. Because, wow, it would like, like everything else that started in this country. It started on this side and went to the other. Why not here? Why not now? If you want it, it's going to start with prayer. Every time. All of you know somebody who's not ready to go to heaven. How about praying for them by name? Well, I have a lot of miracles happen to me, too. Wow, I, I, um, I lost my left leg, four and a half inches of it. I lost this arm, back seat of the car, brain damage, internal injuries. Had I survived the accident, I should have been brain damaged and, and unable to ever walk again. That's what they told me I would never walk again. If I was able to be lifted out of the bed eventually, I would have to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. And... Um, and obviously, I walked into this place this evening, and when I finished, I'm walking out of here on my own two legs. And the arm that was in the back seat is this arm here. It's so uh, surgically reattached, obviously, and, uh, and mostly uh, functional. Um, I, I noticed that I wasn't in the Olympics last year, so um, they didn't ask me. You know, uh, they used to have baseball in the Olympics. So I could probably be in baseball in the Olympics as uh, first base. The, the, the base, not the person. Not the person who plays first base. So I look like an fell in a hay baler from the neck down, frankly. <clears throat> but I, I, uh, I'm a miracle. 
it's a miracle I'm here. Many miracles had to happen for me to survive. And I, I think that's very important that we, we acknowledge that, not just because it's a miracle for the sake of miracles, because I promise you, you're going to need a miracle in your life, maybe several. And, and only, only a miracle will do, because there's no other way out of what your circumstances is, whether it's a divorce or a bankruptcy or a, abuse as a child or you fill in the blank, you know what I'm talking about. Only a miracle will help you get over that, and God is still in the miracle business. I know he is. I am a miracle. may not look like one, but I am. <laughs> Last night we spoke of uh, a subject very close to my heart, and that is how do you overcome tragedy and loss, pain and suffering? Because that happens to virtually all of us at one time or another as well. Some of it's physical, some of it's emotional, some of it's mental, some of it can even be spiritual. People can be tortured spiritually. So when that happens, and it will happen, how do you get over that? You and I both know, we could name names, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to, in fact I don't want you to, I know we could all stop and think of people who have been knocked down by the circumstances of life. I mean, they've really had the wind taken completely out of their sails, and after that happened, they've never been the same. They're just paralyzed by the circumstances of their life. They're depressed. They're overwhelmed. They may even be angry. I had a woman walk up to a book table once, and she was just seething. She says, I'm so mad at God. He took my daughter. She didn't do anything wrong, and she just began to kind of unload and I, I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry that you are separated from your daughter. I said, but you know, where did you get your daughter? Where do you think she came from? Did you not think she was a gift from God when you held her the first time? Well, yes. I said, well, then she's his in the first place, right? He just loaned her to you. I guess. I said, no, it's true. We, we, we think and we own our children, but really God owns our children. You know, our lives are just concentric circles. You know, they overlap. I noticed that my parents, except one of them, my wife's parents, my parents, all of them are gone except one. And my great-grandparents are all gone. My grandparents are gone. They preceded me. That's not always the order of things. Sometimes it's not the natural order of things. Sometimes you lose a child. My wife and I lost two children. I have a daughter. And then I have two sons, twin sons, that are five years younger than them, and that's because in between we lost two children. So, see, they weren't mine. They were just loaned to me. And God's perfectly capable of taking care of them better than me, and that's exactly what he's doing right now. I would like to have known them here, but guess what? I'm going to get to know them there, and I'll never be separated from them again like we are now. So... Um, I, I needed to get through this. I, I just couldn't live this way anymore. I was wearing devices that nobody had ever worn before that are unspeakably painful. And uh, sometimes I'll get up to speak and I'll look down on the front row and there'll be people at the place where I'm speaking who have the devices on. And I had the first one. And I just really blessed God because I wanted some help. I wanted to understand how to get through this. And there was no one to help me because no one had ever worn them before. But now I talk to people all the time who have them, sure. and, and I, I, I love to be able to help them and hold their hand because I get it. Mm-hmm. And don't we just want somebody who gets it when we've been yes. knocked down? Yes. I mean, a lot of people say awfully nice things to us, uh, and they try to do nice things like put up the fence or bring some food over. And those are really highly 
desirable things to do. But really, when I'm knocked down, I want to come face to face with somebody who's been through this and emerged on the other side, and I want to know how they did it. Sure. I want to even know if it's doable or not. There wasn't anybody like that. So I blessed God, and he sent a message to me, a very direct message, like a father talking to his son. This is not about you, he said. It's about me. What I can do through you now, I can never do before the truck hits you. You need to get over the pity party, son, and change your pain into a purpose, your test into a testimony, your mess into a message your tragedy into a triumph. That's, I've been doing it ever since, 27 years. And you know what? When the sun came up in that hospital room that morning, about 6.15 a.m., I dried my tears because I've, I've been crying for three hours, very unlike me. And I knew it was the first day of the rest of my life. And I knew what I had to do then. I've been doing it ever since. I call that the new normal. Because I was never going to be the way I was before. And I want to suggest there's some of you in this room right now who need to do the same thing. You're just angry at what happened to you. You may even be angry at God. As I said last night, it won't bother him a bit. He's God. He'd rather you be angry at him than ignore him. So, what are you going to do about that? I mean, I had a choice, and it is a choice to just be bitter, to be depressed, to be, well, fairly useless for the rest of my life, or I could decide to look outside of myself at other people and their circumstances and hold their hands and say, I understand. I was speaking at a church outside of Camp Lejeune. That's a, that's a Marine base. And uh, tough, tough folks. So I'm actually speaking at a senior adult event. And so... I finished speaking, we had a glorious time, and I'm out at my ubiquitous book signing table, and I shook hands with a lot of people and said hello to a lot of people, and I'll do that after a service tonight, because this is my last service with you, and please be patient, it takes me a while to get out there sometimes. But this Marine walked up to me, a lady Marine. Well, this wasn't a Marine function, but she'd heard about it, so she showed up. And she tried to open her mouth, and she just began to cry uncontrollably. And so loud that some of the other ladies that were standing around came over to hold her up because her knees were giving out. She was about to fall down. So we were patient with her. She finally kind of got a grip on herself enough to speak. And here's what the young lady Marine said to me. I heard you were going to be here today, and I just got back from Iraq. I said, thank you for your service. Our country is proud of you. Thank you. She said, we were over there. My platoon was over there. And we were in, in the barracks, probably what passed for barracks, because they didn't have any permanent facilities over there. She said, there was one girl in our platoon who was the most religious, faithful, dedicated person to Jesus I ever saw in my life. And we hated her. We did everything we could to ridicule her. Now, I have a... Christian background, she said, but boy, I've been away from it a long time. We just made fun of her. We were just cruel to her. We made up things and jokes to play on her. It never seemed to affect her. 
She would always invite us to come to a Bible study. She would always say, I'm praying for you. She just never wavered in her faith. In spite of the fact that bullets were flying around and we're in a strange place and even her own people are being unkind to her. I feel terrible, she said. She began to cry again. Ladies held her up. I said, yes, ma'am. I'm sure that must have been very difficult for you. She says, oh, it was awful. She said, we did the best we could over there, and she never lost faith. I mean, she was faithful to the very end. We got our orders to go back home, stateside. So we arrived here at Camp Lejeune for reassignment. I'm in the barracks one night on guard duty, and uh, everyone else was gone except our friend, the religious girl, the spiritual girl, the Christian girl. She comes down and she says, it's Wednesday night, you know. I'm going to Bible study over at the church. Why don't you come with me? Well, I'm on guard duty. Well, I can see that, but can't you get somebody to substitute for you? I probably could if I wanted to. Well, why don't you do it? Come with me to church. But why don't you come with me to church? No one else will know, just me, the two of us. She said, I came this close to, to getting somebody else to stand guard duty for me so I could go to that church with that girl. But I said no. She left, she smiled, she said, I'll be praying for you. In a little while, the phone rang. One of my jobs was to answer the phone in the barracks if somebody called. It was our commanding officer. And he called the name of that girl. Is she there? No, sir. She left for a Bible study, I think. A Bible study? Yes. Okay. Well, where's everybody else? They're out, bar hopping, doing whatever it is they do. The commanding officer says, well, uh, round them all up when you can. Get them, as, get them back together. As soon as they get there, call, call me and I'm coming over. What's the matter, sir, if you don't mind my asking? That girl, she was killed in an accident tonight. Imagine that. She went to Iraq in that dangerous, dangerous place, and then she came back over here and lost her life. Yes, sir, I'll do it. I hung up the phone and broke down in tears. I came this close to going with her, and I knew I should have, one way or the other. I came to hear you speak today because I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I don't want to go on like this. I know what I need to do now. I said, what's that? She said, I need to take her place. That's what you need to do. Yep. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what came into your life. I don't know what setbacks you had. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you this. Somebody needs to take her place. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. You need a new normal. Instead of letting the circumstances of life yeah. defeat you, knock you down, take the wind out of your sails, it's time to pick up the cross and follow yeah. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it is. I love telling that story. I, I won't forget her face as long as I live. You know, she, she came to a senior adult event in her Marine outfit. And, and, of course, everybody there was used to seeing Marines, but they weren't used to her story. And those women, they, they took her back into a prayer room, and they prayed her up. And they came back out and said, we're going to be praying for this girl for the rest of our lives. Wow. 
So she, she's going to make it, I promise you. Thank God for her and her testimony. You know, testimony is really all this is. This is a testimony. And I told you when I first arrived here on Wednesday, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have one. And you say, well, I didn't get it by a truck. They didn't make a movie about me. Okay, so what? Your story is this one that somebody else needs to hear. Yeah. I get, I get sometimes put out with people who say, you know, I, uh, I was, my parents were very religious people, very spiritual people. They were very faithful to the church. And, and they, they, uh, they taught, they, you know, my mother came to church before I was born. So I was in church before I was born. And then I, 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 they brought me to the nursery. And then I got involved as an elementary school kid. And I was very faithful. And, and I always there. Every time the church doors was open, we were there. And, and, then, and then I came to know Jesus as, as like an eight-year-old. And then I got involved in the youth program. And I've grown up here all my life. I just don't have anything to really share. I'm just, it's just, uh, it's just so ordinary. And I look at them and I say, praise God. You mean this can actually happen? This is amazing. You weren't addicted to drugs? You didn't, you weren't, you didn't sell yourself? You didn't, I mean, I can go through a whole list of stuff. And, and I praise God for those kind of testimonies, don't you? About people who've been delivered from really, really difficult, powerful, in some cases evil circumstances. But how about the person who's faithful? Why is that not a great testimony? I think it's a beautiful testimony. And I, here's what I, else I think. It is. Here's what else I think. You ought to be sharing yours. Because it's about the most powerful thing you've got. Right. Exactly. Who, who can argue with that? Right. Here's what happened to me. Yes. And you just tell them. I've been telling you what happened to me, but I want you to tell others what happened to you. At school? At work? Yes. Your neighborhoods? Your family members? A lot of you have asked me to pray for your family members since I've been here. People that you love here and you're not sure is going there. And I will covenant to pray with you. I promise you, I will not forget that. I don't take that lightly. But you don't give up. You keep praying. And you keep inviting them. I told you, what, last night or the night before about the 95-year-old woman who rolled her wheelchair down the aisle and gave her heart to Jesus. And she said, <laughs> she says, isn't God good? He let me live long enough to do this. 95 years old. And I said, yes, ma'am, God is good all the time. But then she said, you need to know this is the first time I've ever been in a Christian church in my life. Wow. And here's what else she said. I just got tired of hearing people invite me to church. <laughs> and so I came tonight to get them off my back. <laughs> and look what happened, she said. I know where I'm going now. So don't give up. That's right. A 95-year-old woman can do it. You can do it. When the big truck hit me, I was standing at the gates of heaven. I didn't go down a long tunnel. There wasn't a bright light at the end of the tunnel. I was just there, just like that. I took my last breath in that old car on the bridge. I took my next breath at the gates of heaven. Listen to these verses from the Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Anytime the Bible talks about no sea, it means nothing separates us. Yes. Follow me? Yes. Because in that time, they had one great sea. Well, not just the Sea of Galilee, whatever, the Mediterranean Sea. But they called it the Great Sea. 
And if you've seen how big it is, and you knew the kind of boats they had, this was a huge obstacle to get from one another. When we were Simon, the man who carried the cross from, for Christ, he came from where Libya is nowadays, all the way over there on a, a Phoenician boat. So it was a very treacherous journey. Things were set, people were separated by the sea. Not, not in heaven. There's no sea. Nothing separates us. Everybody, everything brings us together. We're all together in heaven. I saw the holy city. Now, heaven is, is variously named as a place. Jesus called it a place. Uh, a, a city. Um, it, there's a lot of different descriptions for it. This one says city. And, and it, because it wants you to understand kind of the breadth and the depth of the place. But don't think about it as like a city like Boston or, or, or Manchester or, or, you know, one of those Burlington. I mean, not like a city like that. This is much more awesome than that. I saw the holy city coming down out of Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Been to a wedding recently? Anybody been to a wedding? They have weddings in Vermont. I know they do. Okay. So let's, let's assume for just a second we're in a wedding. And I'm going to officiate at the wedding. And I come out of the side. There's some preliminary music. I come out of the side. I'm standing here looking very dignified. But you know me and you know I'm not. So I'm standing here. <laughs> And then over here, some more music is playing, and here comes the groom and the groomettes. And they're standing right here, and they're facing the audience. They also are looking very dignified, but they're really not, okay? So they're looking out like this. Then there's some music over here, more music. And down the aisle, here come the bridesmaids. And they're wearing dresses they'll never wear again. And they'll come over here and stand right here, holding flowers, and they're looking out too. Then, there's some very special music up here. From the back there, often on the arm of her father, here comes the bride. One of my most meaningful days after I survived the accident was the day I walked my own daughter down the aisle to get married. As if it, is, as if it wasn't a, an emotional enough day as it was, my daughter who will always remain my little girl, turned to me and said, Daddy, I sure am glad you're here today. And I was too. Well, here comes the bride. You can always tell the difference between the bride and the groom more than just the way they're dressed. When the groom walks in, when the groom walks in, everybody leans over and says, Is that him? What happens when the, what happens when the bride walks in? People stand up, they face that direction because they've come from many miles to see her dress. That's why they're there. And this works out really well because she wants them to see the dress. And she went like across the world to find this right dress. So here she comes walking down the aisle. All right? Everybody's looking at her, which is the whole point of the day anyway. I mean, you could just get a standing room, but like the bride. This is what it's all about. Here comes the bride. But now I have to say this. Listen very closely. Nobody is looking at her like him. He's looking at the bride. I've been married for 43 years, and I remember that night like it was last night. I remember seeing her walk in on the arm of her father, and I remember looking at her and thinking, wow, wow, is she beautiful, and, and we're going to get married. We'll be together for the rest of our lives, and that's 43 years ago, and three children, and three grandchildren. And I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, wow, what do I, 
What did I do to deserve this? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. With that in mind, listen to these verses. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, I've got to tell you, I read this verse as many times before I got hit by a truck. But after I got hit by the truck, this took on a whole new dimension for me. I survived. I still had my bride. But you know what this meant to me? It meant that I hadn't looked at heaven like this before. Like a bride. Like a groom looking at a bride. And I want to suggest that we all need to do that. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you haven't got married yet. Maybe you've already been married. Maybe you're married now. But let me suggest what God is saying here through this scripture, through this revelation, is that if we thought about heaven like a groom looking down the aisle at his bride, we'd be talking about heaven a lot more than we do. Yeah, but we don't think about it. Instead of thinking about heaven like this, we think about heaven when the pastor's standing up here and they bring in a body in a casket and they're having a funeral instead. Then we think about heaven. Why wait? Why we should, why would, you know, we should think about heaven when we're having a funeral. You know, we're thinking about, you know, I, I do funerals differently than the way I used to do funerals before I got killed. I mean, when I walk down the platform and I put my hand on the end of the casket, I'll say in a few minutes, we're going to go out, take Shirley out to the cemetery and put this earth suit in the body. But I got news for you. She is more alive now than she That's ever right. was when she yeah. was here. Yeah. I mean that. But we just don't think about heaven like this until we have to. And if we were a little more heavenly minded, I think we'd be a little more earthly good. I mean, people turn that around like, oh, people are so heavenly minded. Well, I guess you can be that way. I haven't met many. But why don't we think about heaven more? Wouldn't we be trying to get more people in urgently? That's what this is about. Now listen, this is the practical stuff. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and I want you to count, if you will, lean in and count the widths. W-I-T-H, count the widths. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. and They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So how important is three to God? Like real important. So when the Bible says something three times, it means pay attention to this. Yes. So I've just officially announced to you the best thing about heaven. Yes. You're with God. There's a lot of really other good stuff, and we're going to talk about it, but nothing competes with the reality that in heaven you are with God. Yes. With yes. God. This is His place. Yes. You're in His place, so you're going to be with God. Yes. I can't even wrap my brain around the significance of that. But then there's some more practical stuff here. They will be his people. He'll be with them. Now listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No tears in heaven. You say, well, people often ask me about, well, what about tears of joy? Okay. You, you won't need to express yourself tearfully in heaven. It will be joyful. It'll be the most joyful thing you'll ever experience. But there just aren't any tears in heaven. No one cries. There's nothing worth crying about. Sometimes we don't need much here, but sometimes things are so profoundly sad and incredibly awful that we just can't help but cry. No crying in heaven. No crying. No tears. You won't need them. 
There will be no more death. Can I get a witness here? No more death? I mean, how many of you like going to funerals? I mean, how many of you like getting the phone call that says, you know, she just passed away? Or there was just a horrible wreck? I mean, I'm tired of funerals. I've conducted funerals in the past six years for my mother-in-law, my father, my father-in-law, and my best friend. I am tired of funerals. I'm tired of them. But in heaven, there aren't any. No caskets, no hearses, no undertakers, none of that stuff, because no one ever dies in heaven. You live forever. I want to be in a place like that where there's no more death. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of saying goodbye. No goodbyes in heaven, only hellos. I want to be in a place like that. Well, remember what it said about no tears? It it circles the runway and comes back. Or mourning, because it ties the death together, or crying. So there it is again. No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying. And then I'm here to announce tonight, here's my favorite thing. Or pain. There's no pain in heaven. Well, some of you are going, amen to that. Because you know you live in it all the time. Maybe it's arthritis. Maybe it's a heart condition. Maybe, it's, um, maybe you have some, uh, uh, some debilitating injuries. that you, Maybe you have lots of scars on you. In heaven, no pain. There's no pain. You will never have any pain in heaven. Now, here's what I like. And in case you know somebody who thinks the Bible is not relevant for today, listen to this. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So in case somebody thinks this is just an old book with old stories in it, how about that? The old order of things has passed away. I'm making everything new. So heaven is under construction. What did the carpenter king say before he checked out? I go to prepare a place for you. So it's under construction right now. When he's finished, he's coming back. But in the meantime, it's a prepared place for prepared people. That's what it says right there. It's a brand new place. You're going to like it a lot. I did. I mean, the moment the truck struck me, I was standing at the gates of heaven. Now, in heaven, there are 12 gates. In the massive city, there are three on each side. And the reason there are three on each side is, well, there's 12 tribes, but the, the three on each side are announcing that the gospel is for everyone Amen. in all directions. Amen. No matter what direction you go in, in this world, the, the gospel is for them, north, south, east, and west. It's for everyone. And so we arrived that way, and I was arriving at one of the gates, and it looked like the inside of an oyster. It was a gate made of pearl. And it was dazzling. It was ornate. I thought it was alive. Well, it's because of the light reflecting off the gate that made it look that way. In heaven, no sun, no moon. Completely unnecessary. God illuminates heaven with his own glory and majesty. And did you know that Jesus receives an additional name in heaven? He's called the Lamp of God. Yeah, in addition to all the other names we have for him, he's called the Lamp of God. The lamp of God. It's right here. Right here in, in, in verse 23. The lamp of God. The, the light is the lamp of God. The lamb is the lamp, it says. So the lamb of God becomes the lamp of God. 
So you'll be basking in the glow of God Almighty and Jesus and the Son, and you would be blinded with earthly eyes, but you won't have earthly eyes there. So you can see it's reflecting off the gate. Magnificent gate. And then I'm kind of panning down from the gate, and suddenly I make eye contact with the baby blues of my grandfather, Joe Sox. Wow. Oh, wow. wow. I, I love him. And I missed him. Wow. He's the first person I saw. So when I saw him, I knew where I was. Because I knew where he was. Yeah. And he was waiting for me. Let me make an announcement here, very clear. You're not going to sneak up on heaven. <laughs> Everybody up there knows who's coming. Yeah. I mean, they're expecting you. I mean, here, when we give our heart to Jesus, our name is actually written on a book up there called the Lamb's Book of Life. You want your name in this book. And so they were all expecting me that day. They were out there at the gate to meet me. So I'm looking at my grandfather's face. Last time I saw him, he was in a casket. He did not look good. They tried to make him look good. He didn't look good. I was with him when he died. I told you about my dad coming into my hospital room and saying, I'd give anything to trade places with you. And he meant that. But you know, my dad was off and gone. He was in the army, so he fought in three wars. My grandfather never left. He, he was a carpenter, was born in 1925, I think. And so he survived the depression and he survived World War II and all those things. He was so poor, really. He quit school when he was seven years old so he could have enough money to eat. All the kids worked so that there would be enough food to eat. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around that today, but during that time in our country's history, it was bad. Papa grew up without an education. I did not know he couldn't read or write until I was about 13 or 14. Since he was a carpenter, he had to order lumber, nails, all that kind of stuff, and the orders would come in and and it would have a receipt. My grandfather would say, son, sign that for me. I don't have my glasses. So I would sign it for him. I thought it was a privilege, honor, honor to sign Papa's receipts until I found out that he was getting me to sign them because he couldn't read it. My mother told me. I thought you knew, honey. Papa can't read or write. I didn't. I was devastated that he had grown up his entire life without that. There's no shame in that, but I sure... I sure felt bad that he missed all that. But there he was to greet me. When I was a kid, I followed him around like a puppy. You know, he had those big, he wore overalls and he had those big, that big belt around him with tools hanging off. If you're a little boy and you're looking up at that, that's about as cool as it gets. I would follow him around and, and he would work on projects and build things like churches and bridges and all kinds of stuff. Most of it's still standing to this day, although he's been gone for many years. And, and, and I, I would hand him a nail, and it would probably be the wrong nail, but he'd hammer it anyway. And he would look down at me and say, son, you're a big help to Papa. And I believed him. I really believed him. I believed I was a big help to him. Even if I wasn't, he sure did love me. And I loved him back. And then one night he died. A call came in from my mother. Come quick, Papa's dying, she said. I raced out to their farm as fast as I could. I got there before the ambulance did. My dad was doing CPR on his father-in-law. What a sight that was. My mother and grandmother were sitting over in the corner crying, praying. 
The ambulance arrived, and my dad said, son, get in the ambulance and ride with your grandfather to the hospital. I'm going to stay here with your mother and your grandmother, and I'll bring them up there as soon as you find out what's going on. He knew. He knew already. I rode him in the ambulance. I kept looking over my shoulder. They were working on him. We got to the hospital. They raced him in. One of the doctors on duty was my grandfather's personal doctor. I knew that Dr. Robinson would take good care of Joe Sox. They rushed him in. I'm signing paperwork that I have no idea what it meant because I'm the only one there. In a little while, Dr. Robinson came out and had that mask on. He pulled that string behind his face, and the mask fell down. And when the mask fell down, tears began to roll down Dr. Robinson's face. I'd never seen that before. And with all the strength he could muster, he said, Son, I'm so sorry, but I lost him. I did everything I could. I don't know how I had the presence of mind, but I put my hand on the doctor's shoulder and I said, well, I know you did, doctor. Thank you. And I know you lost a friend tonight. Yes, he began to cry. I lost a good friend tonight. I had to go over and pick up the phone and call my dad to tell him to tell my mother and my grandmother that Joe Sox was gone. I got a lot of broken bones in my body, but nothing hurts like a broken heart. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? When Papa died, it just broke my heart. Now I'm standing at the gates of heaven, and here he is to greet me. And he looked really good. I mean, really good. I mean, here on earth, because of all the hard labor he had worked at, as a lumberjack, very dangerous job, as a welder, he was missing three fingers on one hand and two on the other. When I was a kid, I thought that was fascinating, to look at those nubs sticking out of his hand. Now he's at the gates of heaven. He extends his arms to me and he speaks a language I've never heard before but fully understood because in heaven you speak God. And I looked down at the hands that held me when I was a little boy and all of his fingers were there. I had never seen them before. He looked good. No one has any scars in heaven except Jesus. He's the only one in heaven with scars to remind us of how we got there. In fact, I don't remember whether I said this or not, There's only one man-made thing in heaven, the scars of Jesus. But you won't have any on you. You're going to look good. And wow, that was really something for me because back in the car, I have been ripped apart. I have scars all over me. Not in heaven. I was perfect. So shall we all be. My great-grandmother was standing beside him. She was a victim of osteoporosis on earth. This is how she walked. She couldn't stand up straight. She, her bones had collapsed. She was, she was really kind of slumped over. Uh, she wasn't missing her fingers like my grandfather. She was missing her teeth. She had no teeth except some that had been purchased for her. She called them store-bought teeth. She did not like them. She did not wear them often. The only time I ever knew my grandmother to really consistently wear her teeth was to church on Sunday mornings. <laughs> She would put her teeth in and go to church. And then, yes, false teeth. And then uh, when she got home from church, she would immediately take them out and put them in a glass of water beside the sink in the kitchen. When we were little boys, and we didn't have anything to do, sometimes we'd just go in the kitchen and stare at Grandma's teeth. And they were always smiling back at us. But my grandmother, Hattie, met me at the gates of heaven. She was expecting me. She was a good six inches taller there than she was here because she was standing upright. And when she saw me, she smiled at me 
and it was the first time I ever saw her real smile. She was perfect. Heaven is a great reunion with those that have gone before us. They're waiting for us at the gates. They're expecting us. They don't miss you. They expect you. Because there's no time there. It's eternal. And so from a very practical standpoint, they're not sitting around looking at their watch because they don't have one. They're expecting you now. Uh, and, and I pray you will live for decades. And you very, may very well, if that's the will of God. But it may not be. That's why you have to be ready now to go. You can't wait for this. If you wait, it may be too late. Yeah. Too late. Well, those are some of the saddest words in the history of the world. Too late. Too late. A couple of friends from high school are over here. Mike and Barry. Both of them were killed when they were 18 years old. One was a drowning victim. The other one was in a car crash. I went to church with them. They were Christians long before I was. And they influenced me greatly. They were over there. Wow, what was it like as an 18-year-old to go to a funeral for, a, for a, a high school? Both of them played football, but one of them was a four-star letterman. He got a full scholarship to play football at my alma mater, LSU. He never played football at the college because he was killed in a car crash over the Thanksgiving holidays. Oh, wow, to go by and see him in his casket. Good-looking kid, a great kid, a sweet kid, talented. He had everything in the world going for him, and then a truck ran over him and killed him. We were all devastated and brokenhearted. You had high school kids just falling out on the floor because they were so upset. But now he was there to meet me at the gates of heaven. There were teachers and aunts and uncles and all manner of different people who had, had played a role in my life. Right beside me was my next-door neighbor, Miss Norris. Miss Norris, when I was nine years old, my father was overseas again in the Army. My mother didn't have a driver's license. We lived out on the fringe of town. If we went anywhere at all, somebody had to take us. We had to depend on the kindness of strangers. And we did. Over the back fence, over the back fence, Miss Norris, who, who was a foster parent, she had a whole house full of kids that weren't hers. They were somebody else's. Her and her husband were taking good care of them. Over the back fence, she said to my mother, she says, would you mind if Donnie went to church? Would you mind? I, I, he can come with me. I'm jumping up and down over here because I want to go to church. My grandmother took me when I was there, and I always liked going. Right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I would like to go. I would like to go. My mother said, well, if he wants to go, it's, it's okay if you have room. Oh, we have a big station wagon. We'll, we drive around the neighborhood and pick up kids. We'll stop in front of your house. If he'll stand by the mailbox, I'll pick him up tomorrow morning. Well, I didn't. She didn't have to ask me twice. I set my own alarm. I got dressed. I'm out there by the mailbox. And I'm looking down the street at the station wagon. Here it comes. You can hear it down the street because the windows were down. This is before air conditioning. And their kids are just loud. and they're just... So the car, the car pulls up, and Miss Norris looks out the window at me, and she had glasses out to here and a smile just about as big. And she says, honey, would you like to go to the Lord's house today? And I said, yes, ma'am. I surely would. And she said, boys and girls, move over. Donnie's coming to church with us. And I climbed in the station wagon, and I knew somebody cared about me. She met me at the gates of heaven. She deserved to be there. She helped me get there. Two things. Number one, everybody there was ready to go when the time came. Whether they were 18, like Mike was when he was killed by the car crash, or 78, like my great-grandmother when she had the stroke. 
That's a long time between 18 and 78. But it ought to tell you something. It ought to tell you that if you're 18 tonight, or 16, or 10, or 11, or you're 80, you better be ready now. Yeah, these people were prepared. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. You have to be prepared for the place. I wasn't planning on getting killed on the way to church at the age of 38, but I was ready. The other thing they had in common, and here's the big payoff. Everybody who met me at the gates of heaven helped me get there. They took me to church. They told me about Jesus. They lived a Christian life in front of me. Some of them even gave me a Bible because I didn't have one. These people all played a profound role in my spiritual life and development. And so when I arrived in heaven at the gates of heaven, the people who helped me get there greeted me at the gates. Why does this matter? Because it's what you should be doing in Vermont. That's why. That's why you're here. You're here to help everyone else get there. Or you would have been taken immediately when you became a believer. So you have a lot of work to do. In your families, in your school, in your neighborhood, at your workplace. Right outside here. I mean, we got a lot of work to do. And if we do it, you'll see them at the gates of heaven. You'll either be there waiting for them or they'll be there waiting for you. And what a glorious day that will be. When we see them face to face. Oh, heaven is a great reunion. In these years since I came back, many have joined them. I can't wait to embrace them and say, I'm home. I can't wait. Over the heads of the people was this gate. I could see through the gate. There was a street bisecting the city, a magnificent street. It's made of gold. Gold? A golden street? Yes, absolutely. But now it's not just any old gold. This gold is so pure you can see through it. Is that possible? Not here. It is there. Suspend everything you know about earth when you start thinking about heaven. It's not like this. So there's a golden boulevard that runs down the middle of the street. On both sides of it, magnificent structures. I would call them mansions. That's what Jesus called them. And everybody gets one. You'll have your own place. But now, I don't know how much time you're going to want to spend in the place. I don't know how much I am. Because you get the option of walking down the street of gold and talking to Moses. Or Mary. Or Peter. or I mean, I know what I'm going to do. For a while, anyway. And I'll have all the time of eternity to do it. You know what? I suspect I want to talk to you also. Find out your story and how you got there. We'll have plenty of time. So you get the structures, and, and I could see this pinnacle high and lifted up in the middle of the city, and it's, it's covered, well, there are thrones up there. And I could see the most brilliant light of all came from that hill. The, the thrones high and lifted up. And I knew that's where the Lord was. I knew that's where the great God of all creation was. There's a tree off to the side, the tree of life. We get to eat of it. There's a river that flows from that throne, the, 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 the throne. There's a river that flows down. So people want to know about, you know, we've already remembered there's no sea, but there is a, there is a river. Because people always sing about the rivers. You know, many, there's many, many hymns about the river. Shall we gather at the river? Yes. 
We will gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Yes, we'll gather at the river that flows from the throne of God. You're going to like it a lot. It's beautiful. You've got some great rivers here in Vermont, but you're going to like this one. Well, I'm now headed that way because I liked meeting these people, but I knew they were coming in behind me. They were expecting me. So the crowd began to part, and I began to move forward. And then suddenly, I was enveloped in a cloud of angels. They were everywhere. You know, the angels are the ones who bear us up. And I was in angels. One was in the car with me, if you know that story. I thought for years that an angel held my hand in the car, only to find out that the preacher who prayed over my dead body put his hand on my shoulder, not my hand. I thought Dick was holding on to the hand. No, it was an angel. An angel in the car with me that gave me strength and to stamina to carry on. Well, now they're all over the place. Not all angels look alike. Some have six wings. Some have two. Some have none. Some of them take the form of humans. We entertain them all around all the time. You know, they're everywhere. They're here. You may not be able to see them or sense them, but I promise you they're here. They're servants. They're messengers. They're from God. We do not become angels in heaven. That's a completely different group of beings from us. As far as we know, according to the Word of God, the only creatures ever created in the image of God were humans. Us. Angels have a different purpose altogether from us. They're wonderful, awesome creatures, powerful creatures, but they're not us and we're not them. So they were there to greet me and they were singing. I could hear their voices, but the thing that blew me away was I could hear their wings. What a comforting sound it was to hear the wings of angels. As they were hovering about. It really encouraged me. It made me feel so welcome and so much at home. I'm digesting that sound. And then I began to emerge in music. If you like music, you're going to have a spectacular time in heaven. Because there's lots of music up there. Amen. Here's the deal though. Thousands of songs are being rendered at the same time in heaven. Without chaos. Now here, if we play two songs at the same time, unless there's some kind of round or something that we're trying to fit together, that's kind of chaotic. I mean, years ago, I was a disc jockey on the radio. And if we, I, I ever accidentally played two songs on the radio, I mean, the switchboard lit up. People would call and say, I like both of those songs, but I don't want to hear them both at the same time. Turn one off. In heaven, there are thousands of songs at the same time without chaos. And all of them are glorifying God, for He alone is worthy of our worship. Hallelujah, they're singing. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb. All those songs are being lifted up to the throne of God together, simultaneously. One song, one song actually transcends all of them. It's the one song that stands about above all of them. And here it is. Holy, holy, holy. Because He is. And we're not. That's important because I'm not holy. How did I get to heaven? It's a good question. I got a lot of witnesses that will tell you right out, I'm not holy. I'm doing my best, but I'm not holy. How did I get holy? How did I get worthy to stand in the great 
God of all creation's heaven. How did that happen? Well, it happened like this. It was Sunday morning. I was sitting on the third chair, and the pastor at the end of the service says, Who wants to go to heaven today? We're taking reservations this morning. And I was sitting right here, and I'd been to Mike and Barry's Bible study class. Miss Norris took me to church. My grandfather told me about Jesus. They all lived a Christian life in front of me, and I knew I was not ready to go to heaven. And so I left my chair, and I came up, and I took the pastor's hand, and I said, I want to go to heaven. And he looked at me and said, son, this is the best decision you'll ever make. And he was right. Yes. And then I got baptized at the church and I began to be faithful to the church. I didn't know that 22 years later on a lonely highway in East Texas, I was going to get run over by a truck and killed. But I was ready. I was ready. You have to be ready. So if you're 12 or 82, you better be ready. If you can get killed on the way to church, what are we getting ready to do in a few minutes? Leave. It can happen at any time. Don't take a chance on this. Don't take a chance. Well, I'm going in now. The people parted and I began to go in because I, I heard the angels. I, I heard the music. I, I knew where I was. I knew I didn't have to be introduced to anybody. Nobody introduces anybody in heaven. You all know each other. We know as we are known. And so... Even though the people who greeted me were the people I knew on earth, the everybody else is inside, I knew I would see them. I knew that there would be joy unspeakable. We were talking this afternoon about one of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packer, and he was asked a lot of questions about heaven, and he finally tried to answer all the questions he could about heaven, and then he said this, would heaven ever be less than this? No. So all of you have questions about heaven. Yeah. Is this going to be there? Is that going to be there? Is this going to be there? It's not going to be less than this. Right. It's going to be more. Yes. It's heaven. Yeah. It's God's place. Yeah. But you have to be ready. Are you good enough? No. Don't stand a chance. And there's some really good folks in here. I've met them. But that's not the, that's not the key to heaven. You don't get 